Hello, and welcome to Mornings with Joel, commercial real estate podcast, where we focus on rising stars and established players in commercial real estate and talk to them about how they are building legacies in today's marketplace. Uh, first and foremost, want to uh, first of all introduce everybody to this uh, new format. As you know, uh, we did the Joel Miller show for years on the air. You may remember, actually, we were not on the year when you guys were, were in REAP. It was years prior to that. And actually, Lynn was one of my guests back in the day. Come to think of it. Remember that, Lynn? I do. <laughs> so, I was thinking about that. Yeah, yeah. We walked from the uh, Four Seasons over to the studio there uh, after a function at the Four Seasons. But really good times back then. Uh, we were discussing all issues related to commercial real estate during the recession, you know, as it was unfolding. And that's why it was so exciting because everybody was like, what's going on? The sky is falling. You know, what do I do? And uh, it was it was a really interesting time to be on the air. As the years went on, we were on the air probably about four years. We would come on uh, Friday at the evening commute at 4 p.m. here in Atlanta. <clears throat> and Johnny and Norna Deer uh, wound up being my a co-host uh, for the show for uh, quite some time. And we had some very, very dynamic shows. Uh, I'm going to get those reloaded back up to the to the internet at some point. But um, it was the Joel Miller show, so we look forward to that. So our new um, format here, we've brought Johnny back and uh, Norm Nadir, uh, who will probably be joining us in a minute. Uh, they will be with us again, so we look forward to that. Just to mention, uh, Noor and Lynn are based out of Los Angeles, so I do want to give some special consideration to them. First of all, an address was more important than any of this stuff is life. Lynn, how are you guys making out out there? I know we talk pretty often, but you know, for the sake of the group, how are things going in LA right now? It's pretty interesting right now. We've been dealing with these fires for quite some, quite some time, and they're still burning. Um, in some areas, they are threatening homes where I live, they're actually not that far away, so the smoke is really bad, and we've gotten a, we've had a lot of ash. It's been for days now that we be, kind of barely see the sun mm-hmm. because the ash is so thick, but the fire itself is actually burning back into the hills, so it's not threatening homes. It's burned you know several thousand acres, but um, it's just creating this situation where we have uh, I don't know what it is, but this pressure system that's keeping the the smoke from leaving us. But generally, it's it's sort of between COVID, kind of don't go, you know, it was like stay away from each other. So we're just doing a lot of outdoor activities. And now with the smoke, we can't do that. So we're definitely a little stir crazy and ready for this to lift. But at least in my area and for us, which I do live in the foothills of, of Southern California, so it could, it could very well threaten us, but I'm, I'm good right now. Okay. All right. Well, that's good. That's good. I know. Um, first of all, let me introduce Lynn to everyone. I kind of jumped ahead of myself here. Lynn Tolliver is a, a very good friend of mine. We go back many, many years. She has been a, a, a legend in the uh, space of commercial real estate. And her that specialty. Makes me sound old. I'm sorry? I said that makes me sound old. Well, compared to everybody on the call, we, we probably are a little bit older than some. <laughs> so. <laughs> Don't take it personal. I'm aging myself, too. No, we, we appreciate it. Actually, Ron Bennett's on the call from Seattle. I know he's catching it, too. But, you know, Ron is older than all of us. So, you know, I'll throw that out there. But anyway, no, but I, I wanted to uh, introduce Lynn. Like I said, she's a very good friend of ours. You know, she's uh, been gracious enough to come on this morning and, and talk about this. This is officially the launch of the mornings with joel podcast for commercial real estate so that's what we're going to call it mornings with joel podcast for commercial real estate and uh we're certainly welcome and happy to have you all with us today so we certainly appreciate that just going a little bit uh, deeper into this uh and again we we want to give special consideration to those who are fighting the fires uh ron you were about to say something i know you're up there in seattle you're dealing with it as well no, it's not, it's, it's not not as bad as close, but I actually ventured out yesterday and the sun sun looked like the moon. So we're supposed to be getting uh, a little bit of a, a break today and tomorrow as as much as as much as we we cry about it, we're supposed to get rain and we're looking forward to it. Okay, well very good. Hope you get that rain because uh, we're certainly getting enough of it on the East Coast. So we wish we could share, right? It would be be a perfect situation. 
but I'm glad you guys are okay. You know, I've got a lot of friends out there on the West Coast, so obviously our heart goes out to you guys and what you're dealing with. So I just wanted to um, go ahead and, and jump into our discussion here officially uh, and understand that this is unformatted. So I have not given Lynn a script. Johnny, who's one of our co-hosts, he doesn't have a script. And this is still being conducted almost like a fireside chat. So uh, we really want you guys to jump in and add your input. As Cassandra was just saying, it could be a little difficult to kind of get going in this industry and having uh, people that you can talk to and get that help, even Douglas and his wife, you know, this is a good way to do it in a relaxed format where nobody's judging anybody. So uh, feel free to jump in at any time if you have any questions for myself or, or Lynn specifically. But um, Lynn, good morning again. Uh, happy to have you. Thank you for uh, agreeing to get on the calendar. It's been a few weeks since uh, we've been trying to get this together. So thank you for doing that. You know, your background has been equity for the most part. And let, let me talk about it just from a holistic standpoint. You know, this is unprecedented times. We have mass fires on the West Coast. We have people just scared because of the COVID situation, which, you know, we're a little used to kind of what this looks like now, but there's still things that are beginning to develop because we know that some of the stimulus from the government has expired. Just from a holistic standpoint, what do you think is is the next six months to a year going to look like in the realm of commercial real estate? What's your thoughts on that? You know, it's a, it's an interesting question because it hasn't affected all sectors the same. So when we talk about career, commercial real estate, we really can't, you know, put up one umbrella and really capture what's happened in the industry overall. Commercial real estate also includes retail. It includes, and that retail can be broken into sectors, whether it's, you know, the clothing and shopping, or is it groceries and, and, and mass goods, or is it, um, you know, restaurants and entertainment. And so the restaurants and entertainment and the consumer side of the retail were our firsthand experience. Um, many of those have been really devastated and it really depends on the region. And so how deep those effects are, are really kind of regionally and how did that each of those areas shut down? California being one of the worst where it's been, we shut down, kind of didn't get over the hump. They've been shut down again. And now I was, we were been talking about it with what it's doing to restaurants. They finally figured out a way to open lots of things outdoors. And now we're dealing with the fires and people don't want to be outdoors. They really can't, it's not safe. So there's been various influences and effects on various sectors. Industrial, which has been one of the best performing sectors for the past, probably all of this past sort of economic cycle, industrial has been one of the best performing sectors. It's still the best performing because of all of the consumer goods. People are fixing up their homes. We're shopping more. We're eating more groceries. So all Amazon, home shopping, all of those are doing much better. From on the office sector, much of it is still performing exactly the way it was supposed to because they're long-term leases. And so I think we're, we have a little more time before we see which areas are going to be most affected. They've been mostly collecting rents. There hasn't been really deep effects yet, but I think that that depends on how much longer it goes. And that's one of the reasons why the government was so focused on getting some areas opened again. You know, on apartments, again, it's been very hit or miss. And so some areas, I think the most damage or the most effects have been felt in the A's and the A+. Plus. Those are renters by choice. They have options. You know, they can decide to rent something less expensive. And so most markets have seen concessions, especially take up in, in uh, apartments. Most markets sort of broadly still uh, say rent collections are in the 90% because renters know they only have so much time and they're going to lose their, they're going to lose their home so they they can the evictions won't be on moratoriums forever again california being one of the most liberal what the effects are going to be in california are still waiting to be seen because there's so many pressures and so little legal support being given to landlords that some markets are seeing more effects than others but it, over the next you know, six months to a year, I think it really just waits. Everybody's in a wait and see mode. On the investment side, most transactions are down. Even in apartments, they're down somewhat, just as investors are either being defensive and kind of holding on to cash or waiting to see, you know, 
how do you do a performer right now, right? It's, it gets very difficult to do a performer and know that there's a really good chance of whatever you buy today, you really need to be putting in either negative rents or zero rents for the next year or so, and you're banking on whatever cash flow to the extent that you can see, have some clarity on what's going to happen with that cash flow for the next year or so. But I think the long-term prospect, you know, just based on economics, I mean, the other challenge that we have is we have a major election coming up in this sector, right? And so the, there's very, very diverse views on what's going to happen with this election and then what the economic response is going to be after the election. And so we kind of have a double-edged sword. I mean, there's, I don't know that we've ever, at least in my uh, experience, and I've been through just a couple of cycles, dis- despite what Joel says, um, <laughs> I, don't, I don't think we've ever had so many major factors affecting our, uh, our, you know, our purview into the future on the real estate side. Yeah, yeah, that, that's quite interesting. Um, you know, we, we know that uh, real estate historically is very regional, you know, and, and location based. And, you know, that's not going to go away, obviously, but it seems like it's even being more specific to where people are willing to deploy capital. Uh, would you agree with that? You think that's the case? Or is it, you know, kind of people still trying to Status quo. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> no, I think it's. I think that's very, very true. And one of the markets that, that we're really seeing it is, you know, forever. New York was always a darling, right? You could you, somebody would buy an office building in New York, somebody would buy a, a hotel in New York, apartments in New York, and this this pandemic and what it did to people's view of density. Everybody's waiting to see what is that going to do. So yeah, it's been very interesting how. Trend, how regional transaction appeal is when people look at at markets, and so some of the markets that did a better job sort of responding initially, um, maybe they're they're more spread out, sort of naturally, like in Atlanta, or even when we get back on track, Los Angeles will be the same thing, right? Because we're we're much more sprawl than we are urban density, and that you know, sort of works for what this particular crisis was. But I think it, the the way San Francisco, for example, dealt with it early, managed to control it early. They've had some other complications being brought on by other regions, but they're in a better situation. But from the COVID perspective, but they had gotten so expensive, they had already started to experience some softness in the market. The, the office rents had gotten outrageous Lots of folks were looking, tenants were looking for other alternatives. Apartments were so expensive. It was one of the most expensive places to live in the country. People already starting to look for alternatives. So there there was already pressure on that market from other places. Actually, I would be curious to see what Johnny thinks he being up up in Seattle. I mean, we watched Seattle change in this particular cycle like an amazing amount. But I did want to ask Chris right quick. It was either Chris or Johnny who was telling me the other day that we should expect a large migration uh, from the north to the south. You know, if you look at the densest corridors of Boston, New York City, Philadelphia, D.C., all of those areas are are very, very congested. And uh, should we expect a major migration down to the south? So was it was it you, Johnny, or was it you, Chris, that were uh, talking to me about that? Or am I losing my mind? We already are seeing that. Okay. Before COVID, we were seeing that. So the reason why the Southeast has become such a, a hotbed for folks is because, you know, besides the cold, besides the density, there's the tax issues. I mean, Chicago's had a negative population growth for the past 30 years. It's not, it's either negative or neutral. So you had, you know, a lot of black folks come from the South moved up north for opportunity and a lot of them have started moving down south and then you have folks who don't want to live in new york or chicago or other places are moving to charlotte nashville atlanta retiring in florida so i mean for a lot of reasons property value i mean we mentioned san francisco and california well california a lot of jobs and stuff from california toyota is an example moved to texas I mean, folks are moving to the South just because it's just cheaper and they're providing incentives. 
if I'm in Silicon Valley, I'm going to move to it. I'm going to move my employees to Atlanta because I have to pay them less. Yeah, or Austin. Makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it just makes sense. So we're already seeing that, but I think this probably will just exacerbate that a little bit. Okay. Yeah, that was actually one of my questions about the exacerbation of the situation. You know, is, is that going to uh, do that? And it looks like that, that 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 is actually the case. Lynn, I wanted to uh, bring in just real quick in Jerry Warfield. Uh, she, I don't know, and Jerry, are you still out in Austin or are you back in Atlanta? Hey, Joel, I'm back in Atlanta now. Okay, good, good. So talk to us a little bit, you know, as Lynn was talking about multifamily is all over the place. Uh, what are you seeing in Austin right now? I know you sent me an email the other day and kind of in reference to the group. Uh, what's going on out there in Austin as it relates to the multifamily market? Okay, so what's happening in the multifamily market, I mean, it's just it's just a really, really tight market. Um, working with a couple of different brokers, they were just saying, you know, the market changes like from hour to hour. Mm-hmm. And what's, what's available is things that people don't want or is priced too high or has, you know, extraordinary amounts of deferred maintenance. So anything that's coming up, they're like, jump on it immediately, immediately, immediately. So the multifamily market, as far as larger units, uh, 30, 60, you know, 100 units, the big complexes, they're being bought up extremely quickly, even to the point where there's a lot of money being dumped into quadruplexes, triplexes. And so what was suggested to me is like, hey, just buy a couple, three, four duplexes, you know, just grab what you can grab. Um, we've actually started to move into the off market a lot more, like having boots on the ground, calling people with pocket listings, uh, mm-hmm. talking to wholesalers and that sort of thing. And then having, you know, the brokers that we know and agents that we know just reach out to people who are currently owning or may want to kind of cash out, like because they bought, you know, during the last recession or, you know, two recessions ago, they bought it, you know, 70000 and they can cash out at, you know, 280,000, you know, it's just not a big deal for them. They just might want to just go ahead and get out or get cash in preparation for something else going on because they've already made their money and will make some, you know, a a really great sum on the sale. So very tight market, lots of people moving in from California with lots of cash, able to afford those rents. Like Chris said, people coming down from the North. So it's also creating that sprawl of expansion that even 20 miles outside of the city that I just got this news yesterday that a lot of uh, investors are just buying uh, single family homes that they can still get great rents from. Mm. Okay. So single family portfolios, I would assume. All right. Sounds good. Sounds good. We actually um, uh, had crossed our desk the other day, a subdivision of duplexes uh, that a group is looking to put up in North Carolina. So Mm. uh, how how that plays out. Lynn, let's let's go back to you right quick. And, and and Jerry, thank you for sharing that with us. We greatly appreciate your your feedback there. Um, it's always good to have boots on the ground and see what's going on in different markets. It's kind of interesting what we, we see going on. Uh, as you mentioned, Lynn, the West Coast kind of has its issues that it's going to have to work through. I heard a report today that Oregon might have its fires burning until winter, which is like, you got to be kidding me. And I think what surprises me, you know, I'm not as familiar with, I've never lived on the West Coast. I've always been an East Coast guy. But what's interesting to me is that the northern part of the West Coast is pretty dense and, and lush. You know, there's a lot of vegetation there. So you would think that there's enough rain to prevent this from happening. I can understand fires in L.A. and San Diego and those areas in Phoenix, but um, this, is, this is kind of surprising. But, Lynn, in, in that regard, there's two areas of the country that kind of concern me right now. You have the, the virus doing what it's doing in highly dense areas of, of New York. We hear a lot about people moving out. Obviously, I, I keep up with New York because of being from there, but, you know, that whole northern corridor. Then you have the West Coast with the fires, and I'm sure there's some hesitancy with just getting people engaged to do investments there, or they may look at investing in their own backyard as opposed to venturing out in other parts of the country. So I'd like to get your viewpoint on that. And then also we look at what's going on with the hurricanes, um, you have the hurricanes blowing through Southern Florida. Louisiana is about to get hit again tomorrow morning. Uh, Houston often gets a lot of that rain down in that corridor. You know, where, where do you think the money is, is going from an equity standpoint? Is it going to stay very local to where the investors are? Or do you think it's uh, venturing out to areas that are outside of 
areas affected by the, the Gulf, the Northeast, the West Coast? I mean, what's your, what's your thoughts on that? It kind of narrows the, the playing field, does it not? <laughs> so. Yeah, I think that what, what we're seeing is, is an exacerbation of something that's been coming, which is really the effects of global warming. And really, even when you look up, up and down the West Coast, whether it's from Seattle all the way down to, to California and, and into Oregon, all of the Pacific Northwest, what's happening is, um, I think I just heard a report this morning that they said, you know, this time last year of sort of the, the Western states, five or 10% was still in, was in drought situation, meaning had received so much less than our normal rainfall. And this year, it's like 70% or something. The, the rainfall has been just abysmal. So what's happening is everything's super dry. And this dry, the dry conditions combined with, we're having this phenomenon of um, what should be a thunderstorm. Well, what, what should be a thunderstorm and we should have rain and lightning together, which means you wouldn't have fires that turned into this phenomenon of we get these dry storms and the electrical energy is still in the sky and it's creating these dry lightning strikes. And that's really what's causing a lot of these fires, especially in these areas where you say it's so dense, why would there be a fire there? And it's not that someone started it, it's sort of this naturally occurring phenomenon and it's burning a lot of vegetation. So, you know, you kind of see the same thing. Well, why are we seeing so many storms so early or so many storms back to back, you know, where we normally have a hurricane season, but they're just, they're just coming in, it's being pounded, and this is exacerbation of global warming. And as I'm hearing and listening to national perspectives, investors overall are just starting to take that into consideration when they think about where are people going to be. And really, when you're making a performer, making an investment decision, you try to make it where do you think someplace is going, but for the most part, the institutions, there's still a lot of herd mentality then they, they invest based on where they have been investing and where the people are. So those demographic shifts, as people decide, do they want to stay in those corridors or where they're going to be, that's really what's going to drive and drive those decisions. And I think right now, most, there's still tons of dry powder. People are just, they're sitting, they're defensive, you know, what's going to happen in their current portfolios. I don't know that we can see yet that it's making a shift in where people are going to go and what investor demand is. Right now, it's still so much on pause. Gotcha, gotcha. So that's that's interesting. Hey, oh yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Who's that, Johnny? No. Yeah, I want to ask Lynn. Are you seeing any fluctuations in because of some of these changes that we're seeing, investable opportunities? Um, insurance premiums, insurance rates, things of that nature. Have you seen variances, things happening in in, in that in that space? Yeah, that's been happening for that that's been happening for a while. Major major owners. So for, for several years, I was with Heitman, who is a global investment manager out of Chicago, and so they have a you know forty billion dollar portfolio. And theirs is mostly equity. They do have some debt, but unlike like a MetLife or somebody, most of their portfolio is is uh, equity. And they've been seeing their portfolio pre insurance premiums, you know, go up just dramatically. And they're trying to manage that cost by using all the different levers, whether it's, you know, how much of a deductible, how much are going to use for self-insurance? What are they going to do for that? But that's been happening for a while. And I, I, I'm not inside those organizations right now to see, but I know that that is a major concern and a major expense increase that landlords have been having to absorb because some of it you can pass along if you've got triple net properties, but some of it just hits the bottom line. So it's going to be interesting to see what that looks like coming out of this because the other big one has been business interruption, right? And the insurance companies are all saying, no, no, no. COVID and government shutdowns aren't covered in your business interruption. There's been lots of lawsuits that are going to be filed and how does that figure in? Obviously, if the insurance companies had to absorb those losses, that would be another major shift. And I think right now they're just still, they're still absorbed, they're still, you know, digesting that as well as investors are. But that increase has been coming through on a portfolio basis for a while. So from a hedging standpoint, as an investor, 
what what would you suggest or what do you see as being those types of hedges for those insurance premiums that we know are going to continue to go up as a result, you know, this global warming and, and these phenomenons from a weather standpoint that we're going to continue to experience as long as we have gasoline being the leading energy source or oil being our leading energy source rather, you know, what do you see as being a hedge out there for investors as it relates to these skyrocketing insurance premiums? I don't know that I've heard really of a hedging strategy. That's an interesting question because what we what I saw in our performers and, and from the cost was they just the annual increase that they were projecting was higher. So for example, if your normal expense increase was a two percent or three percent, depending on what it was, insurance premiums weren't in, weren't increasing the same. So, you know, the, the thing that investors have to do is then look and say, where do they want to have their concentration? And that becomes another uh, sort of layer of portfolio management strategy, right? You're, you're going to look at both demographic shifts and where do you want to be? You're going to look at what's happening with, with, the, with the weather and insurance premiums and where do you want to be? Because, for example, if you have a, a, a portfolio that's solely concentrated in the Southeast, right? Your your risk associated with the with the inclement weather is going to be much greater. So that becomes another factor in your portfolio strategy. Not just where can I get the greatest yield, because you may also be incre- increasing your risk by being so concentrated in those markets. Yeah, that's a good point. <clears throat> so you got to look at all those those particular factors. Um, one question that came in, uh, considering all that happened in 2020, and being that. Appreciate this. If you want to add to your question and elaborate, feel free to do so. Uh, which sectors of real estate currently still have viable sources for raising capital? What do you think about that, Lynn? Yeah, so multifamily sort of always has some capital uh, capital available, right? Because as a country, we still have a housing shortage across the board. I think investors are being more selective. Um, the high end of the market is less attractive now, the, the pure class A stuff. You know, investors like it because it's shiny and new and they no maintenance is, is low and so forth. But again, things like what's happening with COVID and people exercising those renters by choice, having lots of choice and seeing the increase in concessions, you know, there's some some hesitancy. Right now, there's no capital, not, I shouldn't say no, but there's only very, very, very opportunistic, expensive capital available for the hotel sector because the long range we've, we've seen, I've seen projections as long as three years for hotels to get back to something that was uh, reminiscent of pre-COVID operating because the business travel is projected to be off for so long. There's that leisure will come back sooner because people are going to get tired of being home. But the business travel, you know, people are figuring out other ways to do it, virtual conferences. They think that group business is going to look very different for a long time. So that sector is off. And office, again, this until people get, a, get their hands around what does this density question look like? Although it's interesting, there's, there's two dichotomies on the office, right? All the, all the co-working space, where everybody was very dense in this and then spread out in only the common areas, there's discussion that that's going to go away and we'll go back to more of a you know, kind of 250, 250 square feet per person spread out. Don't put, put people on top of each other, which would mean average office use would go back up. But then some people are saying, well, so many people are working from home. Is that going to stay? People are going to have the option to work from home and decrease office uh, occupancies overall. And so there's a real discussion about which one of those is going to take over. Although I think, you know, various companies are doing these polls and finding that a lot of people want to go back to work. They want to go back to offices, especially I think when you're talking about people who have kids at home and just the inefficiencies that some people experience working from home it's not a cross the board, you know, 80% of people don't want to go back to the office. So I think each of these sectors is kind of looking at what is it going to look like when we come out of the out of this 
and investors are kind of waiting for that same information. And so I think for the next probably six months, we're going to see some reticence, some slowing in overall transaction volume as people kind of figure that out. And the market kind of answers those questions. Yeah, that's good. Then did you, <clears throat> Deneen, did you want to add to that at all? Or did that pretty much cover your question? No, I, I think that that covered the question that I had. Just interested in in, in um, understanding, you know, where these sources of capital are and what they're looking at or what the investment outlook for commercial real estate is. So thank you. Gotcha. OK, thank you. Appreciate that. So let me ask this, Lynn, if um, if you had someone like, say, someone on the line this morning, for an example, that wants to get into small commercial real estate uh, where you're raising a, a smaller amount of money, what recommendations would you have for them? Let's say maybe a, you know, 10 unit, 50 unit, you know, 20 unit. Any any suggestions on that? And obviously it's dependent on the sector of the country and the region and all the rest of it. But is there any general guidelines that you would have from an equity standpoint that you would uh, recommend to anyone on the call? Yeah, you know, that size of transactions is much more, uh, it's much better fit for private investors, whether that's um, family office money or even small syndications. You know, I would really encourage any of you who are looking to kind of launch your own investment platform to start within your own circles, the financial advisors that you know, and, and private capital, because a syndication for, you know, if it's a million dollars or $2 million or what have you, by the time you put the debt on it, it's not the size of investment that's going to fit an institutional investor, but it's perfect for a family office or a syndication. And those, it's really worthwhile to build your own network and kind of, you know, start to penetrate that that way. So, and you can really start with either financial advisors, uh, small small money managers within your own area to make people aware of what your strategy is. And then as you're approaching them about this, you know, it really helps to have a deal that illustrates what your strategy is. So, and, and don't assume that when they see the deal, they're going to understand your strategy or understand because you're the real estate expert and you really have to articulate that to them so that they'll understand why they should want to make the investment. Gotcha. Gotcha. Good point. So if a person, what, what would you say is the transition to larger scale investment where you're looking at it from the standpoint of going beyond friends and family? What's that tier? that you would uh, tell somebody to look at? Uh, well, so it depends most. So for example, I work with a, a group here that has done institutional investments before and they've built up their own sort of stable of, of high net worth investors to be able to raise probably six or $7 million, right? Meaning they have, a, they have their own mailing list, they send it out and they can raise six or $7 million. I think that's where they, beyond that, you start to tap out to, do you have family investors that will write checks for a million dollars or more so that you can bridge that gap and go from, you know, a few people writing checks for a couple, a few hundred thousand dollars to a few investors that will write a check for a million dollars, in which case you can raise 15 million, right? But it really needs to be sort of an equity check of 10 to 15 before you can even approach an institutional investor, because when they have a mandate to put out 200 million a year, they can't deal with investors. It's not efficient for them to look at investments where they're writing checks for a million or a million and a half dollars. Okay. All right. Sounds good. Hopefully that makes sense to everybody on the call because that's where a lot of confusion comes in. You know, well, how do I get these deals done? And uh, I think you articulated that really, really well. Any questions from the group before I go on? I don't want to hog the conversation, but is there anything else that anyone else had to ask or wanted to ask at this time? Okay. Hey, Joe. Yeah, okay. let, let, let Deneen go if you don't mind. Let, let her go. For, ladies first, let her go first, and then we'll, we'll get back to you, Johnny. I know you could be long-winded, so. <laughs> Lynn, I'm, <laughs> Lynn, I'm interested in learning more about your journey and how you have come to where you are in, in investment real estate. That's a good question. Yeah, so I started my career when I graduated college, I went to work for Lincoln Property Company and really as a portfolio controller. I started on the accounting side, 
knowing I wanted to get to the finance side and the transaction side, but my experience at, to that point was accounting. And it really was a great way to learn because I kind of learned real estate from the bottom line up, right? What's going to happen to the actual reporting? What happens to results? I learned doing budgeting, doing rolling up portfolio budgets. And so really under got to understand real estate from kind of the bottom line. What's the bottom line result up? I also started my career in the 90s, which means I started when real estate was really in a depressed situation, which was also great because I didn't start writing performance that only went up. From while I was at Lincoln and the market kind of turned, there was an opportunity to get involved in transactions. And that took a lot of lobbying on my side to move from accounting to acquisitions. And that was a big move. And that was probably one of the most important transitions in my career to move from property operations side to the transaction side. But it was absolutely the best basis for me because I understood the basis of a pro forma, which is really a budget, but I started with actual budgets first. And then from Lincoln Property Company, I ended up going to a REIT, one of the publicly traded REITs here on the West Coast. And at a time when they were building and transact, building their portfolio. So being inside of a company that was working on real estate, I got the benefit of exposure to all of the senior people there who were doing it sort of on that next level. And so for me, having that experience and exposure to a direct owner manager of real estate, both for property operations, we did their own property management, leasing, uh, property improvements, budgets, capital expenditures, kind of all of that. So I got a lot of exposure to, to that before I moved into pure investment management, where I was doing acquisitions for um, MetLife. And actually it was while I was met with MetLife that I met Joel and I was doing acquisitions for MetLife and then moved into writing their joint venture pr platform. So they wanted to become more of a capital provider than just a, um, a direct owner. And they wanted to do more joint ventures. They had more capital than they could put out on just on their own. And so I got to learn a lot about joint ventures both structuring joint ventures from the institutional side and then how to advise, how to uh, select who to joint venture with. And that's really kind of informed the, this part of my career where now I'm independent after having spent you know, 25 years inside the institutional world. And now I work much more independently doing a lot of GP advisory work and helping others sort of package up their deals, understand how to write their deals, understand even how to evaluate their deal from the institutional perspective and identify the risks. All of us in real estate, we, we tend to be optimists, otherwise we wouldn't do this business. We believe that there's, you know, that there's growth. We believe that there's a reason to build whatever it is we wanna build. We believe that there's a reason to buy it. And, uh, and, we, and we always see the, great, the good side and we are very much optimists, but we have to actually be able to put on that other lens and say, what are the risks inside that deal and how do we mitigate them? And that's really important to being able to then present the deal to an investor, which is why I was saying, you know, get to know those family offices, get to know the financial advisors. They, they, they do want real estate. They're, they're, most of their investors aren't going to buy directly. They need somebody to help them understand the asset class and, and source the assets. But being able to articulate the strategy, why this one is good and how you can defend it are, are hugely important. And then so when I uh, went independent after being with Heitman, uh, that's what I've been spending a lot of my time doing. So I really started, you know, in the institutional world, both uh, direct and did joint ventures here in the United States, as well as internationally for the majority of my career before now being independent. Thank you. All right. Sounds good. Sounds good. Lynn, thanks for bringing all that out. And uh, Johnny, there was something that you wanted to uh, ask or bring out as well. Yeah, actually, I wanted to. Thanks, Lynn. I wanted to go back to a comment or uh, Gary um, speaking about the Texas area, and I and I thought maybe I'd misunderstood or or didn't catch it, but you mentioned that uh, multifamily units were a hot commodity there, and I wanted to understand the psychology, if I understood you correct, understand the psychology behind that, considering that we're seeing you know, a lot of people moving from those multifamily units. Why is that 
the case there in, 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 in the areas that you service? So it's not an area that I service, but it's an area I'm familiar with. Uh, Texas is, you know, home for me, but I, I can't, I don't know if I could accurately speak to that other than what I understand from, you know, people who are living in those areas. There's just a lot of people moving to Austin. You know, there are a lot of people moving to the South, South, Southwest. It's one, it's beautiful. Uh, I'll, I'll quite hot in the triple digits. There's a lot of land. There's a lot of space. There's a lot of uh, economy moving there. One of the drivers for a very remote area of outside of Austin, Maine or Texas, Tesla is moving there. Yeah. So property in, you know, literally one day of the announcement or even pre the announcement of Tesla moving there, property values have skyrocketed and driving out there it looks desolate, but the property prices are increasing. And then you, you know, you look around and you start to see, you know, there's survey stakes and things like that. So there's a lot of space. There's a lot of opportunity, but a lot of people so, don't want that. They don't want the responsibility of being homeowners. So multifamily is, is great. They still want community. It's a different mindset. I, I, that's all I can offer you as far as, uh, yeah. you know. Lynn, I think you had some input yeah. on that. I can actually, actually, I can comment on that a little bit. Austin has established itself as another tech market, and they've been able to do that probably over the last probably seven to 10 years. Tech has been growing quite a bit there, and it's because of a couple of things. One, there's a great education system in Texas. So there's a highly educated workforce, offers great quality of life and an efficient cost of living. And so with the tech system, with tech growing there, a lot of the migration has also been sort of the millennials who don't want homeownership. They, they expect to be able to move and stay more mobile. So the rental market in Austin, both everything from single family houses through apartments, and there's been a lot of apartment growth and a lot of apartment construction in Austin. It's been one of the biggest growth markets for a long time. And Austin has been, if you look at the major metros across the U.S., Austin has been one of those top major metros in the last, I don't know, over the last five years. Yeah, very true. Uriah, you have something you want to... Oh, yeah, absolutely. Good morning, everyone. Lynn, thank you very much for your valuable insight. Um, being from Texas and growing up in Texas, what I can state is that if you recall from the last recession when Governor Rick Perry was in office for, I think, five or six consecutive uh, sessions, he actually put into place a number of different economic subsidies for companies to relocate out of New York and out of California, et cetera, and, and position themselves throughout Texas. If you think of Texas as a whole, um, you see that growth, not just in Austin, but also in, in Dallas, Texas, Houston. Um, if you think about it, you got AT&T headquartered in Texas. You got Whole Foods headquartered in Texas. And so because of the fact that a lot of the subsidies kind of spilled over, um, it enabled a lot of different organizations, a lot of different companies to relocate. I mean, if you put in consideration McKesson, a Fortune 100 um, healthcare organization that's worth over $50 billion, I believe. They recently relocated from San Francisco to right outside of Dallas, Texas. And so when you, when you consider those factors and also the fact that Texas does not have a state tax. And so when you add in like the subsidies and the uh, large amount of land and, and all of the, the subsidies and, and the tax savings there, it's a prime opportunity for a, a, a tremendous amount of uh, multifamily growth. Where the jobs go, the people follow. Yeah. Johnny, you had a, a feedback on that? Thank you, Uriah. Appreciate you contributing. Yeah, and, I, and I'm glad that he did mention that um, as it relates to the subsidies and, and the government side of things and, and how that affects this transition. Because we see people moving from multifamily units from New York and places like that and migrating to the South. But just to dig a little deeper, as he mentioned, it comes down to these, you know, opportunities from a government regulation, non-regulation standpoint that kind of induces that and, and motivates, you know, that movement and, and those types of things happening in places like Austin and in other parts of Texas. So that kind of gives a better perspective as it relates to you have, you know, this multifamily unit in, in New York, 
where people are leaving from, but yet they're still migrating to another multifamily unit in another part of the country. And oh, by the way, this government, this the government system in Texas is is kind of welcoming that through whatever subsidies they're offering. So that kind of gives it, you know, uh, some perspective there. Yeah, let me let me just address that real quick. And um, Lynn, I want to make sure you have the last word on our discussion today. But I keep an eye on residential, obviously, and uh, growing up in New York City, uh, in Manhattan, actually, you know, it, it gets no denser. So, you know, I can understand that mindset. You know, if, if when you're living in a, a New York, for an example, or a city like that, not even in Brooklyn, it's the same or, or out in Queens, but you walk out your front door and there's people everywhere, every minute of every day, you know, the subway, the this, the that, everywhere you go, it's just people, 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 people. And you get to the point where you just get tired of that. Now you compare that with an Atlanta and Austin uh, even Los Angeles, uh, in a lot of areas, you you come out and, you know, you may have one or two people you see, you get in your car and you go to work. It's a totally different environment. So I can understand someone migrating from a you know, an apartment in, in a city like that in the Northeast, or even in a Chicago, for an example, Chicago is very similar, and then coming into a, um, a city like in Austin, for an example. Uh, but here's the other thing, just real quick. The residential market right now is on fire. And there's two things that are happening. You're having people refinance a lot of properties. You have investors that are buying single family properties to fix and flip because inventory levels are extremely low. And you have people, uh, well, I mentioned refinancing, they're staying where they are because they're fixing up what they what they have. And then other people, you know, you have a, a population where people just have to move for whatever situation. Maybe they lost their job and they're going to another city now and they've got to move and, and get new housing for that. So you're having a lot of uh, movement in that regard, but at the same time, um, you wonder how single families are going to hold up because a lot of people are losing their jobs. And as COVID goes on, uh, it may get worse and worse. And so if that is the case, the fallback is always multifamily if you can't afford to stay in your home. So I think multifamily winds up being that one institution where, you know, if, if multifamily falls, then everybody's living on the street. Right. And the government is not going to allow that to happen. At least I, that's my hope, <laughs> you know, is that the government won't allow that to happen. You'll have some subsidies. So that's kind of your last stop before you, you know, get put out on the street. Um, to Lynn's point, uh, you look at some of the A and A plus buildings in Manhattan, for an example, those are getting crushed right now. All that stuff on Billionaire's Row is getting crushed. But you could still fall back to a B unit or even a C plus grade of property and just deal with that until you're able to get back on your feet and move up. So um, I think multifamily is, is here to stay in that. And I think that that's the reason why we're seeing growth in cities like in Austin in multifamily, why you don't see growth in multifamily in like a Manhattan, Chicago uh, and places like that. So Lynn, what do you think on that? Any, any thoughts? Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right there. The, the question of, you know, density, it's it's interesting. My I have some colleagues whose kids graduated from, you know, the various schools all, all over SC and, and in Columbia. And one was working in New York and had been there since he went there for school, was working on Wall Street. The SC kid ended up in Boston and was living in the city in Boston and working for, a, you know, for Wayfair or whoever. And they moved from Southern California, living by the beach, end up in the, this density. Once COVID hit, they all left the city. They either came back to Southern California, they're in the parents' vacation houses, wherever. And now they don't want to go back to that density. They left the suburbs and went to that density. They were like, okay, we're going to be the city dwellers and we're working the jobs and whatnot. They do not want to go back. And I was like, no, you mean they don't want to go back for a while. I'm talking to their parents. They're like, <laughs> they don't want to go back. They don't want to move. They're like, we did it. Okay, I get it. They don't want to move back. So there's going to be some demographic shift that, that comes out of this. And to Joel's point, the other thing that's happening right now that's still fueling what well, home prices, because volume of sales is definitely changed, but the thing that's fueling it is interest rates. The government's propped up interest rates, right? Trying to save off whether it's inflation or, or whatever, but interest rates are incredibly low. So if you are in a position to move, you can buy more house than you could have bought before because your same payment will just equate to more house. 
So people who do have stable jobs that are in that position right now, it's a great time to be financing a property. It's a great time. It's also helping to prop up multifamily sales because multifamily, you know, the Fannie and Freddie rates are as low as they've ever been. They're still in historically low range, which means it's a great time to be financing a property. Yeah, yeah, very good point. Thank you for bringing that out because that is the other side of the coin. Those super low interest rates are certain keeping everything fueled. So uh, we don't know how long that will last, but it looks like it's going to be that way for a little while because they got to keep the economy going some kind of way. So certainly appreciate that. Well, everyone, um, my commitment to you is to, to keep this to about an hour. We're up against that time frame. Uh, is there anything else anyone else wanted to add uh, before we let Lynn go and get on with her day and, and all of us get on with our day? Is there anything else anyone wants to contribute? All right. Well, I see everyone muted, so we'll uh, we'll call it at that. But Lynn, any uh, final comments? I was going to spend a minute talking to you about hotels converting to multifamily, so maybe we'll have to do that on our next call. Oh, or, come back. Yeah, yeah. But any any final comments? Uh, we certainly greatly appreciate having you today. But uh, anything you want to let our other uh, REAP alumni here know about? No, I just love the idea that there's folks on here, whether you're in commercial real estate because you work for a company, which I think is a great way to get perspective and you get to learn from, you know, some, some of the more experienced people in the industry, or if you're on your own and you're thinking about doing a deal, just find a deal, put it under contract and do your best to get it syndicated. You will learn so much regardless of whether you get it over the hump or not. But if you don't actually put it under contract and start talking to folks, you won't even figure out what you don't know. So you should go for it. All right. Sounds good. Sounds good. Well, we greatly appreciate that. Uh, we hope that the uh, wind out in California blows away from where you're staying at. Um, I know that's a big issue in Oregon. My friends up there were telling me that it's, it's tough. You go to bed and, and the wind shifts while you're sleeping and you wake up and you're getting knocks on the door to get out your house. So yes, that has yeah. happened. We're, we're, yeah. we're, we're good right now. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, so we wish you guys the best. Um, Lynn, as always, thank you so very much for getting on the call. I'm sure we'll be in touch over the next few days. But uh, And everyone on the call today, thank you so much for joining us. This is Mornings with Joel podcast on commercial real estate. Thank you so much. And uh, we look forward to having you all again next week as part of our group. Thank you again, Lynn. Thanks again. We'll see you soon. Thank you for having me. All right. Take care, everyone. You've been listening to Mornings with Joel, commercial real estate podcast, where we focus on rising stars and established players in commercial real estate and talk to them about how they are building legacies in today's marketplace. Please check back weekly to hear our upcoming guests.